I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long-term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Hello. My name is Demetrius. This is Jason. Morning, guys. And this is Michelle. Good morning, everyone. And you're listening to Spaces Podcast. Thank you for coming back, everyone. Uh, today we are discussing housing. And before, we just wanted to give you a quick reminder. We have our survey that's out. Uh, so if you can check out our website, spacespodcast.com, there's a banner on the top that'll go straight to it. It's a quick seven-minute multiple-choice question, uh, just so we know a little bit more about our listeners and are able to tailor the show a little bit more and uh, help us grow. Um, so today, again, we're talking about housing, but before we get into that, just a quick run around the room. How have you guys been, uh, Jason and Michelle? You know, I, um, busy, I think busy is the word. Last week we started a schedule that basically consists of Monday through Thursday for me is about quarter to four in the morning to about eight o'clock at night with soccer and hockey and full swing and coaching. And then, uh, I have a small break for two weeks until games start on Saturdays and Sundays. So uh, our industry hasn't slowed down. Both companies are pumping. And uh, we're going to see if we can add that in the mix and you know m- make it really interesting. So busy, very, very busy, but good. Yeah, and then you're, you were doing the remodel. You missed uh, yeah. you missed the last yeah. episode. Your your bathroom blew up on so, you. Yeah, so we're, so we're done. The remodel's done. So if you think about it, from start to finish, it took two weeks. Um, including plumbing issues, reframing a back wall due to seven years of rot and termites and whatever else. And that includes four days of wait time for shower glass. So I redid the flooring, the cabinets, the countertops, the paint, 
all the, like I said, the framing, new plumbing, new fixtures, waterproofing, tile, everything. Um, so for me, you know, if you, if you check around the industry, I know I remember our, our last guest, Sarah, she would tell you from a remodel standpoint, like eight days from start to finish really is pretty banana. So I was pretty proud of that. But the funniest thing out of the whole thing, when I was all done and I'm showing it to my wife, she was more excited about a freaking $12 drying rack she got from Ikea than the remodel itself. <laughs> so, you know, it is what it is. But yes, all done. So luckily that's behind us. Nice. Michelle? I saw the pictures of Jason's remodel. It looked uh, very good. I was impressed that he was able to do it as quickly as he did. Uh, Thanks. And I, I always have uh, admiration for people who can jump into projects and use their own hands and get down and dirty. I've got a good friend in Denver who did an amazing bathroom remodel. He's actually done two bathroom remodels and um, it's been fun to see him work on his own house as well. So mad props to you, Jason. Thanks, man. Um, I just tried not to screw it up too bad. That's all. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But I've been good. I, you know, I echo Jason's comments. I'm just really busy. There's a lot going on. And uh, it's exciting that we're talking about housing. It's a topic that has been in a lot of the conversations uh, that we are having locally and then even regionally. And I think there are a lot of people that are looking at the issue um, of affordability and availability. And so I think this is a very timely discussion we're about to have. Definitely. For me, the the, the one big thing that happened was... Um... I was invited to do a, a interview for um, another podcast called Entre Architect, E N T R E Architect dot com, uh, and did a, did a guest appearance on there and, and talked about my background and then uh, Spaces podcast. So if you're interested, you can check that out. Uh, I think it's episode two thirty two. Uh, should be like their latest or um, one of their latest episodes. Uh, check that out. We have a link on our social media and um, check that out and let us know what you think. But that was that was a cool experience. Uh, weird being interviewed. <laughs> so kind of being on the other side. But uh, well, what's a little what's a little background on on the gentleman in that podcast? What's it about? Uh, so that show is about uh, small business architects. So they they discuss all the issues that you run into as a small um, small business uh, from the architecture perspective, and he gives he has a full platform. So he has um, a Facebook community group and um, different programs you can you can enter that help train you and, and teach you about how to avoid some of the pitfalls that you would run into as a small business architect, uh, marketing, uh, accounting, all that stuff. So very cool. Good for you, man. How did he, how did he find you by the way? Uh, Twitter. Yeah. He, uh, there's sort of a group or a, a few people on Twitter that are architects and, uh, just kind of, uh, started following each other and seeing each other's posts and whatnot. And then he reached out. Super cool. Good for you. Yeah. So, uh, it looks like we, we got a little bit of a, a bump in our following after that. So, that was that was good too. <laughs> so let's jump into the discussion today. Again, we're talking about housing, and like Michelle mentioned, it's a very important topic that's that's going on right now. Housing is you know one of the basic three human needs that we need for survival: water, food, and and shelter. 
And uh, we have all of these issues that are occurring with housing, affordability, uh, labor shortage, land shortage, and rising costs. Um, and then immigration is also another element that that's uh, kind of playing a part in it. But to understand more about it, you got to go back in time. Three million years ago, early hominids sheltered in trees. About 400,000 years ago, hunter-gatherers constructed camps with single large huts for the group. The end of the Ice Age was a time of transition from a hunter-gatherer mode to an agricultural way of life. Natufians, an ancient people who lived around the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea as recently as 12,000 years ago, built a village that consisted of several circular huts, each measuring about 10 to 20 feet in diameter. The greater investment of farming made the human relationship to the land more concentrated. However, rather than ownership, this relationship was more like being owned by the land. The sense of land ownership involved only the right to use the land and to exclude people of other tribes. Many of the first civilizations were centered around a supposedly godlike king, and it was a natural extension to go from the tribal idea that the land belongs to the gods to the idea that all of the kingdom belongs to the God King. We modified the existing hierarchy of land ownership to create the feudal system. The feudal system had four levels. On the top level, the king. The next level, the tenants in chief, which included around 200 Norman barons and bishops. Below this, knights, or under-tenants. Way down the bottom were the peasants, sometimes known as serfs or villains. The king directly owned 20% of the land, 25% was owned by the church, and the rest was managed by the levels below. As construction techniques evolved, nobility expressed their status in various styles of luxury around the world, while the ordinary, the peasants, or the poor were relegated to simple wooden huts or homes made of mud brick. In the late 16th century, these feudal principles of land ownership were replaced with a radically new theory of landholding that asserted exclusive control of the ground, allowing owners to use and profit as they saw fit. In turn, the rising profitability of the land and the monetization of the capital it represented created the economic conditions for Britain and later the United States to rise as world powers. By the 17th century, land became capital and ordinary people's home construction improved. Many were built or rebuilt in stone or brick in lieu of wooden and mud brick homes. Chimneys and glass became cheaper and more common where even the poor had them. Through the 18th and 19th centuries in England, a small minority of the population lived in luxury. The rich built great country houses while the poor lived in modest homes in poor conditions. Fortunately, in the 1840s, local councils passed bylaws banning cellar dwellings and gradually demolishing unfit housing and replacing them with better homes over the following decades. At the start of the 20th century, working class homes had two rooms downstairs the front room and the back room. In the front room, the family kept their best furniture and ornaments. The back room was the kitchen, and it was where the family spent most of their time. 
Most families cooked on a coal fire stove called a range, which also heated the room. However, in 1900, about 90% of the population rented their home. In the United States, many politicians believed that to be a renter was to be dependent on a class of landlords, and not truly one's own man. They felt that renters would be obligated to support the political whims of their employers or landlords. After the Great Depression, Franklin Roosevelt, the 32nd President of the United States, enacted a plan of recovery. The New Deal, as it was called, was a series of programs, public work projects, financial reforms, and regulations. The programs were intended to include support for farmers, the unemployed, youth, and the elderly. It included new constraints and safeguards on the banking industry and efforts to reinflate the economy. One key element was housing. In the 1930s, as part of the New Deal, FDR created loan programs to help Americans finance their homes. But to decide who got those loans, the government created color-coded maps in which green neighborhoods were good and red neighborhoods were bad. This practice became known as redlining. Because of these policies, if you lived in the green neighborhoods, it was super easy to get a home loan. All right, I can buy property. But for folks in the red areas, no loans were available. I can barely afford rent with this. There's no fair, the red areas are screwed. Yeah, they were. And do you know why some areas were designated as red? No, but I can guess. Those were the neighborhoods where African Americans and other minorities lived, and redlining systematically prevented them from getting home loans. Well, I know what I'll do. Just take my little guy and put him in the green neighborhood. Sorry, that's against the rules. Early suburb developers like William Levitt instituted explicitly racist policies. Levittown homes must not be used or occupied by any person other than members of the Caucasian race and the federal government itself encouraged developers to discriminate. Developers, I want you to exclude non-whites. The result of these policies is that from 1934 through 1968, a whopping 98% of home loans were given to white families. With the inequalities of employment opportunities, education, and general resources, these redlined areas became a powder keg for survival, leading to a rise in crime, drug distribution, and drug and alcohol abuse. Conditions quickly became an inescapable rabbit hole for most until 1993. The first lifesaver was thrown to these and other low-income communities in the form of subprime mortgages with balloon payments. The share of these loans going to households in minority neighborhoods rose from 2 to 18 percent. By 2008, the packaging and repackaging of these subprime mortgages infected the entire economy and finally came to a head, collapsing the U.S. economy and to some extent the global economy. In its wake, homes, retirement funds, and savings accounts, jobs, and businesses were lost. As a result, wealth inequality increased significantly. Relative wealth losses from 2003 to 2011 were far greater for the less advantaged than for the more advantaged groups in almost every case. Median wealth of lower income households fell in 2011 to 26% of the 2003 level, while median wealth held by the top income households fell to just 81% of its 2003 level. In the US today, 50% of Americans make $30,000 or less annually. 
In addition, 75% of the privately held land is owned by 5% of the private landholders. Housing is now faced with various obstacles, affordability, rising land costs, and labor shortage to name a few. The American economy has experienced rising income and wealth inequality for several decades, and there is little evidence that these trends are likely to reverse in the near future. Arguably, class warfare has creeped into society and few have yet to recognize it. Now more than ever do we need to have a national conversation with representation from all socioeconomic groups to develop a housing policy that works for all. Unless we act as a unified front, we will continue to generate increased wealth inequality and be doomed to a continued cycle of crisis. Okay, first I wanted to mention the audio about the feudal system is from ClickView. Uh, you can find them on YouTube. And the discussion about uh, redlining was Adam Ruins Everything on True TV. You can find it on True TV or on YouTube, uh, The Disturbing History of the Suburbs. Uh, and we'll have those full videos on our website. So what did you think, Jason? I think, you know, what's interesting for me, I think the stats, you know, when we're going through those and you're hearing about the, the distribution of wealth and stuff like that, um, that doesn't surprise me at all. Um, if you look at history, that's usually the way it went. And I understand why people get kind of like the image and the, and the thoughts and the theories that, you know, the wealth take it, the wealthy take advantage of those that aren't blah, 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 blah. The distribution of, um, the real estate itself, that doesn't surprise me at all because at one point that's what, that's what wealth was based off of. You know what I mean? Um, was all the private land and, and basically that's, that was the currency. You know, when you first came over to America, it's, it's people were paid in land and, and territory and things like that. So I know it's something that's always been coveted and basically God's not making any more of it. You know what I mean? So I think people continue to try to gobble up as much as possible. So that really didn't surprise me too much. I don't know about you guys. I was actually kind of surprised that it was such a huge chunk of land owned by so few. I, I just would have thought that some would have been sliced up a little bit more over the years L looking at the list uh john malone i'm not familiar with him but uh he's a 70 year old chairman of liberty media uh, worth seven seven point four billion. 7.4 billion um, he has property in new mexico maine and kansas 2.2 million acres he leads the list that's awesome. that's a lot of land that's awesome michelle did you have any thoughts on that in the business of land acquisition. So I, I do see in today's world, you know, who owns land and who controls land. And it actually is really surprising to me how many kind of sole proprietors or, you know, individuals have control of land in infill locations. And in a lot of instances, the people who control land are people who were business owners and call it the 60s. Mm -hmm. and 80s um, mm -hmm. and those businesses maybe have died but their ownership in the real estate uh, has has gone on and what smart acquisitions those were so many years ago I don't know that the people when they purchased the property were thinking in those terms I think they were thinking more in the terms of here's a place where I can operate my business and it's on a major boulevard that runs through Southern California as an example but a lot of those people today you know have equity that is two million three million four million dollars an acre on assets that either their parents owned that have been passed down to them or again assets that 
that they acquired by, you know, in the 80s and 90s. And so how does that translate to housing? I mean, I think that's maybe the more interesting conversation is, is what does that mean for housing? And what does that mean for the predicament that we're in here in Southern California with the, with the severe lack of housing? Um, and I guess I should say I should not limit it to just Southern California. I think it's all of California and, and I think other places in the United States as well. So like Jason men- mentioned, um, we're not going to get more land. So obviously uh, yeah. the, the price is going to go up as, as we continue. Um, which is affecting affordability. Uh, so let's let's kind of focus in on that part of it. It's difficult for a lot of people to get homes these days for various reasons. The boomers and X generation are somewhat still recovering from the, the Great Recession uh, where they lost uh, savings and whatnot. Millennials have loan debt and coming out of school, you want to go to somewhere that has a uh, higher pay to basically make up for that loan debt. And of course, in those locations, it's a higher cost of living. And then there's, there's other reasons that, that add to the millennial generation, like the de- delayed stages in life. But yeah, home ownership is eight percentage lower amongst millennials than it was for baby boomers at the same age. Um, and then eight point four. And that's like a national figure, right? Yeah. Okay. And then 8.4 points lower than the Generation X. Um, so we're definitely not taking advantage of home, or, home ownership compared to previous generations. From your perspectives, what are you guys seeing as sort of the issues uh, kind of on the affordability point? You know, obviously the way that I think for the most part is a lot more locally centric than it is on a national level, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's primarily we're talking about California and, you know, the West, and then even even more drilled down into like central or uh, Southern California. But I think a lot of the problems are, and we kind of talked about this, I think, in, in a previous one when we were going through millennials. When you look at our parents, they generally didn't grow up in the same neighborhoods or close to the same neighborhoods as they were born and or they purchased, they didn't generally purchase in the same neighborhoods that they were born and grew up in. So I, you know, I grew up in your Belinda. I didn't buy in your Belinda. You know what I mean? I bought somewhere different and maybe in a different situation, but I remember my parents when they grew up in the Valley, they first bought their first place in Vegas. Mm-hmm. They moved, you know what I mean? They moved away and they migrated to where they could get something that was a bit more affordable. And the desire for them was to get into a house. You know what I mean? And have have a home and have that lifestyle and do those types of things. But they were willing to make the sacrifice to go attain that. I think that's something that's a bit more it's not being done as much these days. It's like, people, you know, we can use Irvine. Everybody lives in Irvine. They grow up in Irvine. They want it. They want to live in Irvine. And it's like, okay, but that's one of the most expensive places around right now. So you're not going to be able to get out of college with debt. A lot of these kids have debt. And get a six-figure job and all of a sudden be able, which isn't that much in Orange County anymore, by the way, but, and, and then be able to buy a house here. You know what I mean? Like you'd have to move out. I mean, the, the thought of people moving further, you know, further down or further IE if they grew up in Orange County is like a horrid thought. But that's what our parents did. That's what people did in history. They moved. They migrated. They, you know what I mean? And they started a life elsewhere. And then what happened was. That real estate then began to appreciate because it became more populous. So I think that's one of the biggest things. I totally agree that housing now in comparison to 
30 or 40 years ago and what that debt, that debt ratio um, was to what your income was is totally out of whack in comparison. But we also have, I think, a bit of a reluctance for these individuals to move and kind of, you know, break away and, and start their own life and, and um, take some of their own lumps. That, that's, that's my opinion. I mean, what do you guys well, think? I think part I of, I feel think... like that's an overgeneralization. I don't know that that's, that, that sounds anecdotal, not okay. necessarily kind of rooted in data or fact. I mean, I think when we kind of like, if we want to talk about affordability, we have to think about the components of what goes into the price of a home. And, sure. you know, so maybe we start with macroeconomics, supply and demand, right? So okay. there's sure. significant demand. And, and I guess, let me caveat this with, I really can only speak to Southern California because that's where I live. That's where I work. Uh, that's the market that my business is in. So, you know, I don't know if what I'm about to say is applicable to other places in the U.S., whether it's sure. Arizona or the Midwest um, or Seattle, uh, maybe some of maybe some of what I'm about to say is accurate in those markets. But I think here in California and specifically in Southern California, if we look at kind of the macro economic issue, it's supply and demand. Right. We have a lot of demand from individuals who want to migrate to California because why we have great weather. Absolutely. Uh, the weather is outpacing uh, what we pay in income taxes and state taxes and otherwise, right? People people still want to come to California despite mm-hmm. that issue. And we're just not producing enough housing fast enough. And a lot of that is driven by regulation, uh, some of which that regulation is good and makes us feel safe and comfortable. Uh, but other regulation, which is just purely bureaucratic and mm-hmm. doesn't necessarily have good reason or good purpose, and that slows down the productivity of housing and how quickly we can produce units. I think you know when we look at the availability of land, where land, I, let me back up. When we look at the availability of land, I, I always sort of chuckle when people say we're out of land. Exactly. The reality is. The reality is we're not out of land. There is land everywhere. There will always be land everywhere. It's how do we repurpose land uh, that is now underutilized, that served some other use in the past that isn't applicable to the way that we live today. So classic example, let's take an auto dealership. Back in the day, you would see auto dealerships that would take up 8, 9, 10, 12 acres of land, and they would be strewn about on major boulevards that bisected California, you know, basically running from the coast inland. And these auto dealerships, you know, would run the course of these major boulevards. Well, now, you know, when you go to buy a car, you typically are either one buying it online or you're buying it from an auto center where there's, you know, every single dealer uh, and every single car brand in one little square, you know, square or circle that has literally a mall, a mall of, a mall of autos. So, you know, we now have these boulevards that have, you know, underutilized property that at one point in time in the 50s and 60s was an auto dealer and now is not an auto dealer. And so when you look at that and you say, hey, that's a large chunk of land and a highly mm-hmm. desirable submarket or city of Southern California, how can we repurpose that? Many, many times, uh, and I'm not going to put a number on it, but many times you're met with significant resistance Mm -hmm. from not only community and neighbors Mm -hmm. who 
have got theirs, meaning, you know, they've already purchased their home. And right. so you hear this, this term of nimbyism or not in my backyard, right. but you also get resistance from the city. I, uh, whether it's, whether it's at the staff level, because they are reporting and listening to their council members. Maybe it's the council members who have resistance because they're listening to the constituents and they're concerned about, you know, maybe their next um, election, election. Yeah. or, or maybe they're just good leaders and actually listening to their constituents, but there's got to be some better education about how do we really revitalize and repurpose, you know, the underutilized land uh, that exists in these markets so that we can produce more of what, you know, is needed. And it goes back to what you said, Demetrius, it's a basic, the basic human uh, need is shelter, right? So, you know, I think we can kind of get into a lot of different topics on that, but, you know, when we look at, the availability of land, I, I think it's there. It's how do we produce quality housing? And so I'm not suggesting we just produce housing for the sake of producing housing, but how do we produce quality housing expeditiously and meet all different levels of incomes, whether it's you know college graduates uh, who maybe don't have a huge nest egg to you know the folks who have worked for 10, 15 years and maybe have had the opportunity to save to, you know, the active adults who are moving into fixed incomes. And, you know, what does that mean? So I think there's a lot of ways we can take this conversation, but those are my initial thoughts. Well, yeah, the, and, what's interesting to me is as you're sitting here and you're saying like land's available, land is absolutely available in more ways than five, right? But if you take that example, and this is when we're speaking to affordability, there's only so small a house or, or so small a, a unit, because at that point, when we're talking about addressing living for the college grads coming out, you know what I mean? They don't have a lot there. They're going to need something that's pretty inexpensive. And there's only so small a space or a studio that you can make in a multifamily type development that's going to be able to support the 12 acres or whatever it is you said is sprawled out for a, a car dealership, right? My point is those are the individuals that for the most part are saying it's not affordable where I want to live. Housing well, is yeah. absolutely Housing is absolutely affordable. If you go like using your Southern California piece, if you go to the outskirts or even further into the Inland Empire, absolutely affordable. You just don't want to drive. Yeah. Well, you don't want to get away from not, where you're at. It's not practical in so many ways. I mean, you think about where the employment centers are. And so if you want a certain kind of job, you can't go to the places that are affordable and still have a practical lifestyle, meaning mm. that you're not spending six hours in the car two or three hours on on yeah in your vehicle i mean that's not that's a trade-off um i i think the other issue though is at least that's a trade-off that's an absolute trade-off but that's not a reason that's not a reasonable trade-off i don't think it's reasonable to suggest to someone that they should live an hour and a half away from where their job is i don't think that's reasonable and that just adds to other major issues like infrastructure and um, congestion, traffic, and just, uh, quality and just on of the, life, on the, just, the health of an individual. I mean, that's just, that's not, I don't think that's the solution. Yeah. On the I individual think, basis, your, uh, your insurance is going to go up as well. The wear and tear on your car goes up as well. You mm-hmm. miss out on, on your life with your, your kids. If you have a family, uh, your mm-hmm. wife, it's, it's way more detrimental and not reasonable to expect someone to to go through something like that. And one thing that I wanted to mention is, you know, we, our, our generation has gone to school in, in greater numbers. So people have more of a debt and you, 
in order to live a life and try and be debt free as soon as possible, you have to go for these jobs that make, you know, that will pay more to be able to sustain some sort of reasonable life at some point um, to pay off all of this debt. So that's why people try to get to these areas where there are higher paying jobs. Um, yeah. So it's so. I don't know. So I, think, I, would, I, think, I, would, I think a lot of that is subjective, though, guys, and we have so to keep I that into consideration. Talk, I would love to talk about the components, at least in new housing, new construction, uh, the components that go into the cost of a home, right? And so I would call there, there's probably four major buckets. One is the cost of land or the price of land. So what does it cost the developer or the home builder for that land? One is the cost to develop and build that land. Uh, one is the government fees that get paid to all of the agencies, cities, counties, school districts, municipalities, anyone that's sort of overseeing or has jurisdiction over the piece of property. And the last would be the profitability of the developer and the builder. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I will tell you home building is probably one of the lowest margin businesses in you know, if you looked at all the businesses uh, in all the categories of business, home building is not a high margin business, right? What do you What do you tend to believe is the margin you're shooting for? I've heard numbers around fifteen percent. Uh, no, uh, on gross, yeah, gross would be fifteen, but net, you're you know, most builders, most publicly traded builders are probably somewhere between, depending on the location, somewhere between six and ten percent okay. on a net basis. Okay, and then do you do you subscribe to just because there's a lot of things? This is a number that I heard recently kind of like a third, a third, and a third as far as your costs. So you've got your land costs, you've got your home building costs and operations, and then you've got marketing and, and overhead, and then ultimately you're left with that 15 gross that you're talking about out of that last third. Um, you know, I've never really looked at it in those terms, but I guess what I was, was going to – one of the topics that I want to sort of touch on is, one, the – impact fees that a developer pays for every mm-hmm. single home that is built. Most cities in California, the lowest I've seen it in California is about fifteen to eighteen thousand dollars per unit or per home that is paid in impact fees to a city. Um what do you and mean? typically your do you impact, mean impact fees, fees are yeah so so a developer pays uh what they call developer impact fees or diff fees. And those fees can include things like park fees, police fees, uh, school fees school. are certainly yeah. included. Um, your school fees generally are $3.97 per square foot of your home. So if you think if you take the square footage of your home and you multiply that by $3.97, that is what the home, I think it's $3.97. I'm actually second guessing myself. I could have that wrong, but it's in that range. Um, that's, the fee that a developer or a home builder is paying to your local school district. And so I'm not saying that that's a bad fee to pay, but I'm saying, you know, is there a nexus for the dollar amount that's actually being paid? And so you pay right. things like park fees, police fees, library fees. Sometimes you just pay a flat old impact fee that gets paid to the city. It's a, an impact that goes into the city's municipal uh, budget and is used for services, right? So whatever services that city needs to offer generate for a community and so you know really looking at what are the fees that we are paying in california relative to what are fees that are being paid elsewhere part of the issue on why the fees are so high 
is tax driven, right? So what, what year was it that California passed Prop 13? Sure. So, you know, we don't as a state generate enough revenue, uh, I think, to cover the amount of people that actually live here. And then there's also a lot of people that live here that, you know, either aren't paying enough in taxes or, or maybe aren't paying, paying tax or aren't paying at all. But but it's more that they're not paying enough based on the number of people that live here. Right. So it's kind of like you get in this math equation. But but the other issue and, and Jason will know a lot about this topic. The other issue that we're really facing in our industry and, and how quickly we can produce housing is the cost to build. And the yeah. cost of construction that has increased drastically since 2011. And, you know, when I look at what it cost us to build a townhome in 2011, it was about $60 per square foot. So $60 per square foot of your home. So let's just say, hypothetically, you had a 1,600 square foot home. Uh, you could count on it costing about $96,000. And that's foundation and everything above the foundation. So it's literally the construction of your home. Uh, yeah, and just top up. Inside basically. of your home. Top yeah. up, not including the land. Yeah, so 2011, we could build a home for $96,000. Today, that home is... Let me make sure I've got my math correctly. I'm, I'm guessing between 80 and 85 bucks a foot. Oh, no, no, no. Much greater than that. Today, the, the, the same to build the same exact townhome is about 100 to $105 per square wow. foot. So we've gone from $96,000, uh, what, seven years ago to build a townhome to about 168000 to build a townhome today. So what happens when when the cost goes up? You still have to hit a certain margin, right? right. Uh, your landowners start to feel really good about the market. <laughs> they know that there's, there's a supply and demand equation, right? And so the, the cost of their land starts to increase. And, you know, that's when you see the market start to increase. And so you're, you're, you know, the cost of the home. And now there is a price ceiling. At some point, you can't sell a certain home for more than a certain dollar amount. The mar yeah, and the I market ultimately dictates. There's no way you can get around. Correct. And that's, yeah. I think, where we're starting. That's where we're starting to enter into right now is where we're starting to reach these points where we can't meet a landowner's expectations on what they believe their land is worth. And so transactions just aren't happening. And if transactions right. just aren't happening, what does that mean? Homes are just not being built. Yeah, if homes are not being stay built, or go down again. Yeah. Correct. And so, you know, I think we need to start thinking creatively about how do we produce more housing quickly, given the constraints we have on the cost of land, the cost of labor, uh, the the shortages that cities and municipalities have in their budgets, and I am not suggesting that we not pay cities. I'm just saying, you know, it, it. I think it's helpful to educate people on what are the components that go into the price of their home. Yeah, on the city side, there needs to be a some sort of explanation on where all these fees are going, because like in LA, for example, I have no idea where that money's going as far as service. The, the streets <laughs> the streets are garbage everywhere you go you there's it's just littered with potholes everything's in poor condition I have no idea where any of the, that money for those fees are going besides uh, a politician's pocket so cool so, easy big cat easy. <laughs> so uh, so that needs to be looked at for sure aside from that I wanted to to touch on a couple of those things that that you mentioned uh, Michelle that are kind of driving up price of the construction 
uh, one on the labor side is the uh, immigration is is a big topic where people that are coming in that are immigrating uh, for labor purposes are being ushered out. Yet those that are wealthy are being welcomed in uh, through whatever fees they pay or, or uh, contributions they make, um, which they're a lot, kind of drive, helping drive up costs because they're able to purchase these homes at whatever price they are. Um, so that's also playing a dynamic. Um, but on that labor side and also the material side, Jason, are you have you heard any reason why the material would have been going up? And have you seen any change on the labor side? Um, well, you know, as, as funny as it sounds in a basic sense, like Michelle's talking about supply and demand just on the price of housing, it's the same situation. I mean, really, anything in economics can always boil down to supply and demand. Right now, the issue for labor is at such a shortage that the cost of those prices are just driving up from the subcontractors because ultimately, you know, they're starting to bid stuff saying, eh, you know, I'll throw a stretch number out there. And if I get the job, even though I really can't do it, it's going to make it worthwhile for me to cut somebody else loose. Makes sense. Mm-hmm. And send them over there. And that's artificially driving up the price of all these other uh, jobs. And, and a lot of what Michelle's seeing that's accounted for some of the increases that she's referring to. The other issue that goes along with that is the amount of skilled labor that's available these days is a far cry from what it used to be. Mm-hmm. The people that are on job sites these days are not nearly as skilled. I was just sitting in a meeting with the builder yesterday talking about how they've had to actually stop production on two phases because they've had so many issues with how homes are like some some portions are being built that they need to repair those before they move forward. That's scary when you start scrambling so hard and so fast um, that you're making those types of mistakes. That's that's a little worrisome. OK, so that price is going up. No, I don't see a break in that coming at all. Uh, for the foreseeable time until things start to slow down and maybe we can touch on this. I know sales numbers have slowed a bit in the last few months. Okay. So that's, that's, a, I think in my, in my view, that's a good thing. Um, because the, the speed at which everything has been going is I think unhealthy. Um, so I think that's good. Now on the material side, you know, I, I like a lot of things that, uh, that we've been doing, um, in government office, if you will, but there's a lot of tariffs that are being placed on a lot of materials that are being imported. And a lot of that has to do with steel and lumber and um, cementitious type product. That's a big problem. And that's freaking a lot of people out. And the price of lumber um, has been going up dramatically and consistently. And now what's really interesting, where usually you're looking at dimensional lumber is, is the stuff that, that gets the heavy taxes and things like that. Um, your two by fours, your two by sixes, your actual construction lumber. They're starting to look at figuring out how to tax and tariff soft lumber or, um, you know, like stuff made out of pine and those types of things, which is utilizing a lot of other products that go into the house. So I don't think the cost of material is going to slow at all. Um, if anything, it might get a little bit more hairy. I don't know. I mean, maybe you can share what you're hearing because I know you guys have to deal with budgets, Michelle. Um, on some of that stuff. And I'm pretty sure, especially on the lumber side, the framers and, and your plumbers and those types of guys, they're, they're telling you guys what's going on with material costs. Yeah, that's all part of the cost to construct that I was referencing earlier. It's just, it's been surprising how quickly it's changing. I mean, I think the change really first started in 2015 is, you know, summer to the end of the year in 2015 is when I, you know, as an 
while I was underwriting real estate, that's when we really noticed a significant change. And it's just gradually gone up since 15 to where we are today. So yeah, I think it's a, that, that's certainly a real, it's a real issue. And, and the tariffs, uh, in a lot of sectors, I mean, the automobile industry, there's a yeah. lot of, uh, industries that will be severely impacted. Uh, the other thing that, you know, moving maybe away from kind of the conversation on the cost of labor, uh, I think the other sort of interesting conundrum that we're in uh, right now is, Demetrius, maybe you were there earlier this week. I know Jason was. We actually just heard from two very well-respected economists um, in Southern California. Well, one Allie for sure. <laughs> <laughs> They're both. Yeah, Mark, Mark Bowden and Allie Wolf, who, as you all know, if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, uh, Allie was one of the people here uh, before me. And, you know, they both spoke on, was that Monday night or Tuesday night about, or sorry, last week, I guess it was last Thursday about, yeah, it's Thursday. Uh, yeah, just about their, their viewpoint on where we are in the economy right now, what the forecast is going forward. But what I wanted to maybe call out is when we look at interest rates, mortgage interest rates specifically, so not not generalizing about interest rates, but just mortgage interest rates, it's very fascinating to me how low um, our mortgage interest rates are today. And if you ask your yeah. parents, you know, for, for us who are in our 30s, if you ask your parents, you know, they'll tell stories about when they bought their house and it was 15% or 19% or these kind of astronomical numbers. Even with these really low interest rates, people are still finding it very, very challenging to purchase a home. They they may have the desire to purchase the home. And I think part of that is driven by this down payment conundrum. And how do you actually save enough money if you're not in sales or not receiving significantly sized bonuses, right? If you're just a quality employee and you work for a major company and let's just say you're making a hundred to hundred twenty thousand dollars a year that's a very decent income but if you don't get the giant ten thousand twenty thousand fifty thousand dollar bonuses at the end of the year and your bonus is maybe two and a half percent of your income you're not buying a home off of two and a half percent bonuses right mm-hmm. if you, you just can't you can't save money fast enough and to exasperate the issue is a lot of these people are then renters. And when you, it'd be interesting to see the numbers. I don't have the numbers, but it would be really fascinating to see what the average renter is paying in terms of their income, uh, the rent to income ratio. You know, are they paying 40%, 50%? What is that number? So when you think about that, let's just say it's 40 or 50%, it goes back to the the point I'm trying to make, which is you just literally can't save enough money quick right. enough to purchase a home. So well, unless you have and help, in, unless you have help from a parent or you're fortunate and, and are in a position where you do get significant bo- like year end bonuses or you get significant sales commissions of some kind uh, where you can really start to accumulate the down payment. And the other thing that was mentioned at, at this uh, economic forecast is they were talking about in Southern California, they used $850,000 price of a home <laughs> as, as the metric. Like, <laughs> like we should all be proud of ourselves that, that 40% of the homes in Orange County are priced under $850,000. What? $850,000, it would be it take out areas like Seattle and New York and Connecticut, right? It would be mind blowing. I think if we looked at 
the what the rest of the nation is paying. Eight hundred fifty thousand. I'm pretty sure you could buy like a twenty thousand square foot mansion in Texas for eight hundred and fifty thousand dollars. So see, it just but, was really. But see, be careful though. Be careful though, because now you're going back to what I was saying in the very beginning. That comes down to choice. You know what I mean? Like in lifestyle and all these other things we're saying, because the affordability is there. It just may not be here. Same as it is to the to the degree of what you mentioned, New York, parts of Chicago. You know, I mean, some of these other places, Northern California has got a lot of it going on, too. Right. Where you just you, you can't afford it unless you've made, a, to your point, a significant amount of money to be able to put down a down payment because the ratio between what the cost of that monthly payment to own a home and the cost of what people are paying in these luxury rentals these days locally are roughly the same. To your point, it's just that down payment because the cost of the housing here is so high. And two two things. Uh, one, Thank I think right. one thing I think you have to be. Uh, it's more important nowadays to be critically strategic about your life planning from high school. So choosing a school where you're not, and we're going to get into this in our next episode a little bit more, but being very strategic about your planning from high school, what school you're going to go to, your expected salary, and you know where you're going to live and, and buy a home. Um, so you're just pushed earlier, early, earlier to to make those plans and, and decisions and then the other point i wanted to make to uh what you were saying michelle i think another things that will be on the horizon to get another look at is rent to own programs right now they're not entirely desirable but if someone can come up with a a more palatable rent to own program i think that's another option that would add a lot of uh, flexibility and potential to to actually get into owning a home uh, in the future. I literally had a conversation with my wife this weekend because we do a lot of future planning, right? I've got an almost 10 year old at this point and I've got a seven year old. And this, I think, breaks down to the same thing that I think a lot of the millennials or youth of um, you know our industry and stuff like that are trying to buy houses. I literally told my wife, if we want our kids to live around us, you know, going forward, right? I mean, within within a decent amount of uh, driving or space in Southern California type of deal. I said, the only way, unless my son becomes a professional hockey player or my daughter becomes some concert pianist or dancer or whatever it is, the only way they're going to be able to do that is if we get them their start. Mm -hmm. Meaning, you know, get them into a town home, get them into something to be able to help them with that. Because I completely agree with what Michelle's saying. The cost, the barrier to entry into home ownership here in Southern California specifically is far too great for most of these individuals to be able to do coming out of school far too great. And, and I, and I think I really do believe that's going to continue on because we're by the coast. You've got beautiful weather, as you guys mentioned earlier, and there's a lot more demand for housing here than supply. And I don't think that's going to catch up, nor do I necessarily think it should. And then you have the you tech know? tech jobs that are attracting more people as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, so I, you know, Michelle, I completely agree with you. And that's what I'm saying. Look, my wife and I literally had that conversation and I said, here's my plan and here's what we're going to do. Because if we want our kids to grow up close to us and not have to move, like a lot of my friends have done, and I've got another one that's looking at moving out of state because the cost of living here is just bananas in comparison to what you can do. To your point, $850,000 house in Boise, Idaho, where everybody seems to be going these days, like you're living like a freaking king. You know what I mean? So I completely agree. I think the costs here are out of whack, but not out of whack to where people can't buy because it hasn't stopped. 
The only difference is maybe that supply and demand curve is a little bit different than, than would be to make it a bit more affordable, but we're still selling houses. So going back to what we we're talking about before, that the market dictates until such a time as they can't get those premium for houses, it will not change. Yeah, just, it can't. It will not change because no matter what anybody says, the demand is still there and people are still buying. People are still paying two million dollars. I mean, what was the stat they were using below eight hundred and fifty? I think you said, right, Michelle, below eight hundred and fifty right. was was super strong. And do you remember what the top number was that was super strong? I think it was like one point four and above. The demand is still there and the ability for people to buy it is totally still there. There's a small gap, but the builders aren't going to stop. They're not going to change what they're doing until they're forced to do so. And the problem is because of the mix that we've mentioned earlier, weather, you know, great location, demand, everything there. It's not. Why would you change? Why? There's no reason to. So but, since, so because that demand is still there, let's quickly kind of run through some some potential solutions. We've talked about offsite construction. So go back and listen to episode two uh, to get a little more detail on that one. Uh, robot labor to put to replace some of that labor that's going out the mm -hmm. door right now. Mm -hmm. uh, timber advances in, in timber usage is is a big thing now, but maybe kind of in question a little bit because of the trade tariffs that are going on. Mm -hmm. And then this one I wanted to really kind of touch on, and you guys feel free to jump in, is reimagining living. So like you were talking about early on, Michelle is uh, rezoning certain areas. Uh, those unused lots that uh, you can use some residential, introducing mixed use, co-living. And one I wanted to touch on is the small lot ordinance uh, that's happening in L.A. and is slowly trickling into Orange County. Have you guys worked on, on those projects at all? We, um, we've looked at properties uh, that have had small lot ordinance zoning uh we've not actually built one i mean it's <laughs> in in some ways it's kind of a fancy way to say you're building a townhome yeah uh, mm -hmm. and the difference is the difference is you have you know ownership no of the, the land yeah you, you typically have a six inch air gap between yeah. walls and that sort of thing but you you have fee simple ownership in your building you know in your home as well as the land underneath your home and that's the main difference between you know small ordinance and townhome yeah so you can um, you can get the higher density and have the the legal ownership of of a single family detached unit um, they're typically on the ground floor the garage and maybe one room uh, second floor is usually a living uh, main living space and then rooms on top and usually the benefit because you don't have much Land is a, a rooftop deck in a lot of cases, uh, which is a right. new trend um, that's kind of going on. But a lot of people are sort of offsetting the small footprint with uh, sort of bells and whistles in design, which ultimately drives up the costs, including with the demand. Um, so a lot of these things are going for close to a million dollars um, or just under in, in a lot of cases. But if these can be done creatively and sort of cost controlled um, and make them, you know, attractive, uh, that could be a solution as well. And then adaptive reuse and uh, community land trusts is another thing that, that I saw where they're basically a nonprofit corporation that develops land on behalf of a community 
and basically controls the price of, of rent and sell so that it's uh, remains uh, affordable. I can't say that I've had any dealings with something like that. Not yet, at least. Yeah, there's a few. I think there was 20 some, 20 some odd community land trust projects that have occurred uh, in the United States. And then the uh, last thing that I wanted to mention was tech companies are entering the home building space. So builders, uh, beware or start partnerships. Like, uh, like you mentioned before, Jason Lennar did a partnership with Amazon for mm-hmm. the, for the smart home, mm-hmm. uh, cause they're coming. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, what's his name? Elon Musk already has the roof tiles. I don't think he's going to stop there. And then he has the, the battery for the home. So it needs, it needs some kind of revamp. I mean, we've talked about it before. Our industry is, you know, in my, in my view, at least on how we build is archaic in comparison to the advancements in so many other industries. You know what I mean? We're going to need to see some things change um, in order to keep up. So I think, I think um, an infusion of new ideas is good. There'll be a whole lot of, there's going to be a whole lot of opposition to it, a whole lot of naysayers and those types of things, but there always is until things change, right? Yep. So um, I think I think it's good. I'd welcome I'd welcome the fresh thoughts. I think it'd be great. Yeah. I, I you know it's funny. I was thinking, where do we go from here? You know, what's the next steps? What can we individually? What can we as individuals do to help deliver housing? And and I think it's an important you know an important thing. Uh, and I, I guess where my head goes is just be open minded. You know, think think outside of of what you've always known or what you've always thought to be true and um, have empathy towards people who maybe aren't in the same financial position or, um, you know, didn't grow up in the area, but are, are trying to put roots here. Uh, You know, just, I think just be open-minded and be empathetic and, and be a Yimby, which is yes yeah. in my backyard. Uh, be a Yimby, and don't be afraid of your neighbor. At the end of the day, we're all humans, right? Yeah, I wanted to uh, to end with this sort of quote that I found on on this website called Nest the the Nester dot com, discussing the purpose of the home. It said the purpose of our homes change with each season of life. But in order to have a home that serves your family well, it helps to think of the overall purpose of your home. Right now, I want our home to be nurturing, a place of learning and learning how to learn, a safe place to practice taking risk, a place to come back to, a place for laughs and for connection, a place where you don't have to pretend you're perfect, a place to let your guard down, a place to just be. So I thought that was a great point and well-written. And like you mentioned, Michelle, no matter your role, designer, user, policymaker, or regulator, have an open mind. And for the non-politicians, especially designers, get involved with your local government and, and push your state representatives uh, for fair and effective housing policies because everyone deserves a home in a safe and healthy community and hopefully with some land. But uh, we ran a little long today. So we'll skip some of the fun stuff, but one quick reminder to help us out and fill out our survey. Again, seven questions, multiple choice, take you less than a minute. Uh, the link is on our website, or you can find uh, posts about it on our social media sites. 
and we'll skip listener mail today. But if you want to send us an email about anything we talked about today, feel free to send it to hello at spacespodcast.com or connect with us on social media, Spaces Podcast. And thank you again for spending some time with us. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate or like it and forward the link to a friend. Your support is the only way that this show grows. And if you stumbled upon this show, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss another episode. Also, check out spacespodcast.com. Under the Listen tab, we'll have photos, notes, and videos of things that we talked about today. But before you go, next time on Spaces Podcasts. Normally, I would never remember this, but I was doing a commencement address a few years ago, and I was scrambling for some old things, and I found in a box this plan. And this plan had turned yellow because of age, but I looked at it, and I would say it was, it was reasonably accurate for all of uh, 18 to 24 watts after it was written, and it was nothing, there was nothing, not a single thing on it that was accurate post that. Not a single thing. <laughs> Zero. Um, and I think that the lesson there is, at least for me, maybe you guys will be different, maybe you have much more uh, insight into what you may be doing, but for me, the journey was not predictable at all. And if you're catching up, hit next. Or if you're listening as we put these out, we'll see you in a couple weeks. Thanks. Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders. Get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry. With Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm.